0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 172, and today's guest is Aubrey Pagano, partner at Corrigin Ventures. It was obvious that entrepreneurship was the future for Aubrey, being that she started her first venture as a child with a neighborhood door-to-door art gallery. After graduating from Harvard and spending time in the finance industry, she knew that she always wanted to start a company. She had noticed a growing trend towards mass customization across different sectors and decided to start a platform for custom fashion called bow and drape with her co-founder Shelly Maddock. Like with so many startups, you have to find the right product market fit for your audience. And it took lots of experiments, determination, and good old-fashioned hard work before they landed on a hit that being personalized casual wear that was fun and all about expression. Not only did it appeal to a mass audience, but soon celebrities and influencers became customers. The company was acquired last year by Win Brand Group. For Aubrey's next chapter, she has joined Corrigin Ventures as a partner. She is looking to leverage her combination of experience as an operator and investor to work with entrepreneurs who are reshaping the real world and layering technology over daily life experiences. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a deep dive into bow and drape and the stories behind the company, why entrepreneurs might wanna consider debt financing more often, how Aubrey landed in the VC industry and discovered a passion for working with other entrepreneurs through X-Factor Ventures, all the details on Corrigin Ventures, a seed stage investment firm, advice for female and minority founders when raising capital, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. If you have been enjoying the VentureFist podcast, then please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the more that people will discover these amazing stories about entrepreneurship and building companies. Thanks in advance. We appreciate it. All right. Without further ado, here's my interview with Aubrey. Aubrey, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Yeah. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because you have built a company which has been acquired, and now you're a venture capitalist. So we're going to talk a lot about that. And um, you know, this is a little bit of you know background in the Boston tech scene, obviously complemented deeply in the the New York tech scene now too. So, but to kick things off, uh, Bow and Drape uh, was the company that um, you you had started, and I thought it was really interesting. In my research, I found a post that you had written about the acquisition, and it got in some of the kind of a the history of of the company, and one of the interesting tidbits that I just thought was fascinating was uh, Serena Williams wore one of your t shirts for her first date with Alexis, now her husband.
1: <laughs> yes, according to her, she did. So I was floored when she told me that. I had the uh, distinct opportunity to sit down with her and chat one time, and that's it came up. She's been a big fan of the brand, and. Uh, We were talking about how the clothes are so expressive and fun and that they're so comfortable and she told me that and I was just like, oh my gosh, if I, uh, I cannot take any credit for their wonderful relationship, but I was so excited to have a tiny, tiny part of it.
0: That's so cool. And I'm, I'm really excited to learn about bow and drape because Um, you know, you, there's a path of, to how you got there where you had like celebrities wearing your clothes and influencers, and obviously, you know, people just loving your product, but it didn't start out that way. So we're going to talk all about that. Uh, but let's talk about your background. So talk about your experience, you know, like what were you, what were you like as a child? Like I I read that you started your first company when you were six years old. So, so talk about that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. uh, Very enterprising young child. I was just very, uh. Energetic and curious and bossy, I would say. And bossy? so, when I was, yes, I was. I was definitely the leader of the pack in terms of our. Uh, I lived in a little cul-de-sac, like a dead-end street, and I was always getting us into trouble with these sort of harebrained ideas. And so, one of the many things that I got in trouble for was I. Um, I started a, what you could call like an art collective. I basically commissioned everyone in the neighborhood. For art, I was like, you need to make some clay stuff. You need to make a painting. You need to make a, a dream catcher. And I was like, I'll come back in a week and collect everything, and then we're gonna sell it door to door, and then we'll split the profits. And so we <laughs> we uh, went and we made it. We we put a fair at the end of the street. It was kind of like a souped up lemonade stand. Then we went. Door to door and sort of like pity sold these art pieces to all of our neighbors. And so, from a very young age, my mom sort of laughs about it, where she didn't even know that this was happening. She was like, "Mary said that you were coming around with all these these things for her to buy." So, um, yeah, from a very young age, I was just curious about and liked to build things. Um, So that's why I say it was my first business.
0: Yeah, well, it was legit. It was. I mean, you you made it. You had people build great products for you and you you know it made a, a production out of it it wasn't just you know it was like a street fair type of thing and then mm-hmm. obviously uh, you got to get your neighbors involved when you're that that age to sell products so you knew your customer yeah exactly <laughs> so now you went on to study at, at at harvard so you studied history and literature so what was the thought behind uh uh those studies
1: So I got what I think was really good advice from a senior who was my roommate's sister at the time. And we were deciding what we had to study. And she said, girls, this is a liberal arts education. You will be fine coming out of here. Do what you like. Like, do what interests you. Do not do econ. Do not do what you think is the right thing. And so that advice really stuck with me. And hist and lit was, um, at Harvard was an honors program where you got to study interdisciplinary works between history and literature. And then for part of the curricula, um, the kids that were selected got to actually work one-on-one with a professor um, to create, or an assistant professor to create their own curricula. Mm. Um, so for a couple years, I just like mapped out what I wanted to study and then would one-on-one talk with a professor about the work. So it was really, really cool. and very nerdy and, uh, So I like went full tailed into that and really tried to make the most of my, my time uh, at Harvard. So nothing, I mean, it taught me how to think and it taught me how to write, which I think has ended up serving me well, but um, definitely was not applicable to my transition into finance specifically after school.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so what did you do after school then?
1: So after school, I, um, I, I was in debt and so, uh, and, I, and I thought coming out of school, I was like, you know, someday I might want to start a business. I was always sort of entrepreneurial um, and spirited in that way. So I always say entrepreneur with a lowercase e because I didn't really, I don't think there was this ethos at the time of like what it means to be an entrepreneur. True. Uh, and so I thought, well, maybe I should work in finance because I can get out of debt, I can learn a lot, I can learn some of this, you know, I can learn this thing called Excel. Um, and so I came in really um, with, with the mind of having it be continued education for me. And so I ended up, thought I was going to stay a couple years, I ended up staying longer at Fidelity Investments. So I worked at Fidelity Investments, working in the strategy group that reported through like the office of the chairman. So we it was during the 08 downturn so we had a ton of crazy projects to work on. Um, so if you can imagine, you know, we were trying to spin up new interesting businesses. We were looking at buying different businesses, doing some M&A stuff. We were um, cost cutting a bunch in the organization and figuring out how to create efficiency. And so it was actually a really good, on a much, much, much bigger scale, but like a really good learning as far as how big business runs. And I loved my team, so I ended up staying longer than I thought I would. Um, but got out of debt and got to live below my means and save up money, so that eventually, when I left, I um, had a little bit set aside to to set me up for that risk.
0: All right. So, so how did you get into starting your own company?
1: I, like I said, I always wanted to start something, and I had a couple ideas that I was bouncing around for the couple years that I started to get serious about it. And the idea for Bow and Drape really stemmed from. I was really passionate about this idea of mass customization and saw customization happening in technology. Um, I saw it happening in food and other verticals, you know, with Chipotle was one of the biggest companies at the time. And, um, and so I thought it was funny that apparel, which was such a massive category and something that I was always passionate about, didn't have a mass customization element to it. There was sort of these cheap screen printed t-shirts online that you could customize. And then there was really bespoke stuff. And I was like, there, I bet if you could figure that out, that women around the country, men around the country would pay for that. And I thought specifically women, because, um, because I think women like the, the hunt and sort of like the, the curation of customization. And, and so that was a hunch. And then I, I it, it's that one business just stuck in my craw. And I, I launched a survey for people to see if they would like it. I, I was mentioning to you earlier, I uh, started working for a designer in Boston at nights and on weekends, just to get a sense of like, how, how do, how does making clothes work? How do supply chains work?
0: So I think that's important right there. So you like, y- cause you had no experience in apparel and fashion, no. you, you were interested in it, but that's different than actually manufacturing and supply chains and, you know, selling to consumers or retail. So you volunteered your time to learn kind of the craft. So what did you learn over that stretch?
1: I learned about, oh my gosh, lots of different facets. I learned about the design process. I learned about sourcing. I learned about the actual manufacturing because we actually made the clothes in her apartment. So I'd go to her apartment in the South end and would help her, you know, steam open uh, seams and sew on buttons and So I was sort of getting this really deep hands-on view of what it was like to create clothes and started to understand what is the wholesale market like? How do you sell this stuff? How do you get line sheets ready to to sell into retailers? And so it was kind of this, in my opinion, I was like, this is amazing opportunity. Like I'm basically doing this for free. I'm getting like a free education. Um, And so it was a way for me to also dip my toe in and And really, try and do it in a way, but also not not fully commit to it. Um, and so that was important to me to to build up the confidence to really take the plunge into doing it full time
0: Now this is for context so this is two thousand and twelve, correct yes and And how did you get started? Because originally the company name was Zora, and you did a whole Kickstarter campaign. so how did how did you get started?
1: Yeah, so yeah so the business the business took almost until 2015 to really get to what bone rate was so we um and it's a very you know common pivot story but we first i said okay if customization is something people want i want to test that but i don't have any money uh so what if i create a marketplace so i actually with with my boyfriend at the time and then uh, a friend who became my CTO, we designed a marketplace where we could take existing designers and an input flow for people to customize their designs. And I got these designers contractually to say, yes, they can customize our dresses. And then we would facilitate these custom pieces to go out to the consumer. And so it was an easy inventory less way for me to test what kinds of things do people want to customize? How much will they pay for it? Like I, I say this a lot to other entrepreneurs. It's like, just getting in market and starting to see what people will pay for is like the best way to test. And so, um, so that was Zura. Um, and then through that process, we found that it was actually pretty hard to manage all these different designer supply chains. And so much of our time was actually spent on the designer relations side, helping them manage the orders, helping them manage, um, customer service because their supply chains weren't set up for customization and so that was sort of the big key for me coming out of that was okay there's demand like we had sold like 100 dresses or something like that um but the the sticking point was in the supply chain so i was like i think maybe if i want to do this i i might have to do this myself i might have to vertically integrate and create my own supply chain so that then i can sell to people in a more frictionless way And so then that's sort of how Bow & Drape was born. And and so we launched a Kickstarter with that idea in mind that was, okay, what if we created our own supply chain with our own brand for customization? And at the time I was still hooked on this idea of dresses. So I had, remember I told you, I sent out a survey to people, which was a a big learning for me. Um, I think surveys are again, like no indicator of purchase intent. Uh, They, you know, of real purchase intent. Um, and so everyone said, oh, yeah, I want dresses. I want dresses for special occasions and weddings. And so we were really hooked on that. And so the original bow and drape was all about customizing dresses and special occasion wear. Um, and so that's what the early Kickstarter was about. And we we worked on the business for about the Kickstarter was successful, but it was a lot of my personal network. And we were finding that we just weren't getting this sort of the moment. you you can feel momentum in a business, I think. And for there's this interesting tension where it's like you have to create your own momentum, but then you also have to feel the momentum drafting off of that. And so we didn't feel momentum in this idea of dresses. And so we started expanding out into different categories. So it was like, maybe it isn't dresses, like maybe that was wrong. Maybe it's Maybe it's separates, maybe it's pants, maybe it's tops. And so as we started to experiment with different bodies, we found that our t- we launched a t-shirt and the t-shirt started doing like exceptionally well. And it was just a t-shirt where you could customize the color, the neckline, whether it had a pocket and uh, you could put like a little embellishment on it. And and so we were like, Oh, there's, there's something there. And maybe we had, and at the time too, this was now 2013, you know, there's a big cultural shift. Like, I don't know if the last time you wore a suit or a dress you know, when you went into a business meeting, there's this huge cultural shift happening where people just were getting more casual. Right. Um, I think a lot of it was, you know, Silicon Valley and the, the impact of the tech industry. But so we we're like, okay, let's embrace that. And so then we launched in the fall of 2013, I believe, a sweatshirt, a sweatshirt with sequin letters on it that I had actually used those sequin letters in high school to make, And I thought it was this kind of kitschy, fun uh, expression of of a staple piece, and it it just went off like it was it was so clear that that was what the business was going to be. Like we had sold thousands of them within the first couple months. Celebrities started wearing them. We couldn't keep them in stock. We had and at the time. know it's like you iterate through all this stuff in the background these sequin letters at the time now we have this whole process for it, but at the time we were actually gluing each letter on with like um industrial fabric glue and so we had a warehouse just full of t-shirts just drying like with all these sequins so it was like totally unscalable to start but we were like okay this is it we just got to make this work i give my co-founder a lot of credit for making that (laughs) not the way that we did it forever but um but so, yeah, so it, it um, that's really when the business became what is now bow and drape um, was when we really retested into the sweatshirt and saw that it was really about casual pieces that are all about expression um, and fun and very giftable. And that was sort of like the secret sauce that, that made the business fly.
0: And, and what year was that at the point where you finally had that moment of, wow, this is the product?
1: So it was at the end of the holiday season of 2013 into 2014. 2014 was the year where we were like, okay, we have, to, we have to start to turn the ship toward this. Like this is the answer. Yeah. Um, and so then for 20, basically all of 2014, because we had, um, I don't know how much you know about apparel, but it's like you have to buy your fabrics in advance. You have to like, you know, so it's like we actually had a bunch of stock already for the spring season. And so we were like, okay, there was this big decision of do we do we just cut all that and try to just scrap it? Uh, we'd already done a photo shoot and just go straight into this route. Do we launch that stuff? Like we were trying to figure out which direction to go. So it kind of took until like the end of 2014 to really stick the direction. Um, and I think that was a learning too. I think in hindsight, like if you know that you have a winner, just like plow into it. I think we spent, we lost a lot of time um, trying to accommodate this sort of old version of bone drape and this new version. Um, and I think in hindsight, I would have just scrapped all that been like, whatever 80, 80 grand down the drain, like we will make that up if in if we just market this one thing that's clearly working.
0: So like, the were you still doing dresses too? And like, I know you were doing like 3D, 3D printed accessories and things like that. Like you were definitely doing lots of experimental things.
1: We were doing lots of experimental things and the 3D belts were almost a way of, the 3D printing stuff is not really scalable. And at the time it wasn't really cost competitive, but it was a way for us to establish credibility as somebody who understood customization. And so it was as much a marketing piece, like we didn't blow out of, 3D printed belts um but it was it was more um, a marketing angle to be like we understand customization we're the go-to for customization and we're sort of on the forefront of all this stuff so yeah so we did that we did dresses we kept doing dresses in 2014 until basically the end of 2014 where we were like okay we got to stick it and then from 20 the end of 2014 until when we sold the company, we were really focused on the more we focused in the, the more successful we were.
0: Now you moved the company eventually to New York, which, you know, if I was building a you know fashion brand, I'd be in New York too, the epicenter of it all. Um, so, you know, like, how did you keep the company going as far as, you know, raising capital or like, like how did, how did you, you know, focus on that investment side of things?
1: We, raised a friends and family round in 2013 um and we closed a seed round shortly thereafter so we raised what at the time was a seed now i think it would be considered a pre-seed everything has sort of moved but um i think we raised like 5 or 600k um to get us going and then we raised another couple million over a couple more tranches, um, and so we went. the it, it was it was challenging to. We went through the whole. You know, I went down. Um, I went down to San Francisco. I went down to Menlo Park. I like did the whole Sand Hill Road thing. I um, and what I found was, ha- you know, having hundreds of conversations was that the. The people who really got it got it right away. and and I think being the learning was that was seeking out investors that might already be open to this rather than trying to convince somebody who's maybe a tech investor that this is like an interesting new application of tech. And so um, the more focused we got there as well, in terms of seeking out retail experts, seeking out people in trade, Seeking out people who really understood the market, the, the more successful we were. So, we ended up raising a few million dollars. Um, and then we also leveraged debt really effectively. So, we got the business profitable. And that's something that on the VC side, a lot of people don't talk about, but we, we probably raised more debt than we did equity um, in funding the business because it's, you know, as you know, it's like it's silly to pay for inventory with
0: equity. Well, and so that's a good point. So I, people never talk about debt. They always talk about venture capital. So what do you do? Do you go to a bank and get a loan? Like, like, like no one talks about debt. So what is that process like?
1: Oh, no. And there's no real roadmap for it. And I think part of that is because like I've said this before, where I think it's because like VCs sort of hold the mic. Um, and so it's in their best interest to talk about how like that process works for really high growth companies. And so, um, So debt is a, it's kind of the wild west and we did all kinds of creative things. I think that's really the name of the game in terms of fueling a business is just anything that sticks. So we were, you know, we started very early banking relationships where maybe we wouldn't get a loan right away, but it was like, let's establish a relationship and tell us exactly the hurdles we need to get over to get a revolving line or to get credit. So that was like the first thing is not being afraid to have those relationships and have people say no, just to like get familiar um, we did a lot of creative things with our investors. So we had a lot of really good investors um, where we had a couple really big, we started to sell into wholesalers like um, like Nordstrom and Bloomingdale's and there were some big POs that we needed to fund. And so rather than go back out to the market with our insiders, we would say, hey, this is a dumb thing to dilute everyone. What if we build this in as a note, like it's a short-term note, We'll give you guys preference on it. Maybe we'll give you warrants on it. Like we got really creative with the type of structures for short-term capital where we knew it was repeatable and we could pay it back. And, and if you're in wholesale or like not just selling direct online, that's easier. And now, um, and then eventually as we got big enough and got profitable, we started to go to some like middle market debt where, we, where people were actually securitizing our debt and like, um, And we are able to get credit lines that way, Um, but now in the market, there's also even more options. Um, Like, you know, there's there's different interesting kind of factors. There's a company called Dwight that does really interesting factoring. There's ClearBank. There's there's lots of different um, assembly brands that are, I think, are attuned to all these options. Kind of weren't available when we were raising debt, but they're really attuned to creative structures for brands to be able, if they have repeatable revenue patterns to underwrite against that. Um, and so I think for for inventory companies, for whether it's hardware or soft goods, um, I think it's like a really important strategy for a founder to be thinking about early on. Like as I talk to entrepreneurs as they get bigger and bigger, I ask like, what is your debt strategy? Like, I just don't believe in like raising just equity to fuel your inventory.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So that's, that's good value add that you have that experience of all the different vehicles to fund a business uh, as an investor and helping coach entrepreneurs. Cause like that's a whole nother podcast. I mean, I, I've, like a thousand questions, but, like, <laughs> but, but I'll, I'll, I'll focus on, you know, kind of the story here. So it did end up getting to the point where um, the company was acquired. So I'm always fascinated, like, how does that happen? Does somebody just reach out and say, Hey, we're interested in what you're doing or like, how do, you know, things like that happen?
1: Yeah. They, um, one of my investors, Jeff Blurr, said, uh, companies are bought, they're not sold. Um, and that really ended up being the case where I think, And a lot of people don't really talk about acquisitions and like how that happens. But I think it's you have these two kind of intersecting trajectories where your company has this very specific value proposition in the market that you are trying to sell, and you have to sort of intercept a company where you are exactly meeting a match of their priorities. And it has to be like their top priority. It can't be like priority three, four, five. like. And so it's a little bit of luck and timing in that way, where like we had... We got So when we went out to the market, we had a couple people who were kind of circling around the company. And we were like, okay, let's strike while the iron's hot. And we we um, talked about this with some people before, but we really were at a crossroads in our company where we were profitable and we were going to raise a bunch of debt to open stores. And so we were like, okay, we can either raise the debt, open the stores, be in this for another five years, or we can sort of take this asset that we have maybe find a really great partner to scale it and then go on and do something else. And that was like a really hard decision to figure out which one was going to be the most, the most successful. Um, and where we ultimately netted out was we were really scared given our cash position at the time, because we, that's a whole other thing, but we had, we had, um, we had an issue with one of our three PLs and there was a big dip in cash flow uh, because they short shipped a bunch of stuff. And so there was a dip in our anticipated free cash flow. So we we're like, okay, we're not going to be able to do as much this year as we thought. Do we just try this year and see where we get? Do we try and sell because we're still like we're still sitting up high, um, or like what do we do? And so it's a, it's a very complicated. It was not an easy decision to try to risk adjust. Like, what's going to be the best thing for this company? Um, I digress a little bit but like but i also don't think people talk about that it's like it's not just this like oh it's so fun like let's sell like a lot of times it's this really tortured decision where we were sitting i remember sitting with our excel models open like drinking wine at like the wine bar downstairs like the three of us just figuring out like what do we do what does our cash flow look like can we pull this off like Uh, Can we pull these plans off? Are we going to get 80% of the way, 20% of the way? And so um, we said, okay, let's entertain these conversations. And so that process, and we actually brought on a really great banker who used to be at Citi to help us with that. And that was hugely instrumental too. Um, And so we kind of circled up all the people who we had talked to and ran a process. And then that's how it ended up happening. But um, there were a couple of people we were really close with. But again, to my point, like we were probably priority three or four on their list mm-hmm. and so like some of the like one of the deals that we wanted to do like didn't get done and so for Wynn I think we were always really like what they want to do with Win as a holding company to grow brands is like we are so aligned in vision and uh, we fit in their wheelhouse so it was just like such a good match that that it ended up being the the best option for us.
0: That's great well congratulations I know it's you know, it's, it's uh you know you worked on it for for eight years right and as you just shared it was <laughs> a lot of blood sweat and tears figuring stuff out debt like all these things that you know yeah. finally to get to that point it's uh you know it's quite quite the road and um, you, know, you in your medium post you, about the acquisition you, you said something where you're like one of my investors said this to me you're giving up if you sell the company real entrepreneurs don't give up So, so what what does that mean? And like, how does that influence you as we're going to segue now into you as as an investor?
1: Yeah. I have to say, I was so happy to be able to write that because (laughs) I remember at the time I was almost in tears. I remember coming back from that meeting and I was almost in tears and my co-founder Shelly was like, F that guy. Like, what is it? Are you kidding me? You've sacrificed your entire life to keep this thing going. Mm -hmm. Like, what is he talking about sitting up on high that you're like giving up? Um, and so, yeah, I think for me, you know, if, if you're really passionate about your business and really do make sacrifices and run, run through walls, like, on, good entrepreneurs, like, take their decisions really seriously. And I think good investors have, like, should trust their entrepreneurs that they are making a very, like, tenured careful decision. Um, and so for me, that was a really catalyzing moment where I was like, people are nice when things are nice, but like when interests don't align, like people's true colors come out. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I was like, wow, if I ever get the chance to be on the other side of the table, like I will never be that kind of uh investor. And I think partly because I lived through it, because I know and can empathize with how hard some of those decisions are. Um, But also because I'm just like not an (laughs) (laughs) asshole.
0: It's such a different perspective because as an investor and regardless of the type of investor you are, there's some amazing ones. There's some, I guess, middle of the road ones. Then there's some Mm -hmm. that, you know, maybe aren't so great, whatever. doesn't matter. But they're running a portfolio and you're the entrepreneur that that is what you've put your blood, sweat and tears in over eight years versus one of the many companies that you're, you know, hoping that a certain percentage return the fund and create the returns for your, for your LPs. And then the ones that kind of like just lay flat and then the ones that, you know, have a negative return or something, but um, you know, it's just a different emotion.
1: (laughs) Totally. And I just think there's like a, there's a, there's a grace to knowing the sort of like finality of what's going to happen. Like I, I actually got the opportunity to sit in on, Um, like Chip Hazard is involved, is a partner at Flybridge is involved in X Factor. And one of the X Factor companies got uh, acquired and it wasn't a great outcome. And just watching his reaction and like the grace that he had to sort of be like, you know, I get it. And like asking kind of just like the questions that he needed for his portfolio, but like trying to be supportive was such a different reaction where, you know, I think there are, there's not just one reaction that someone can have and i think that as an investor you kind of have to expect that 90% of your companies are going to be in that position like you know you're that's the the power laws that that venture goes by is that you're going to have maybe one two three winners and you you know that a lot of these other ones despite you know them struggling are not going to get to this like you know billion dollar exit mm-hmm. um so anyway, so I, I just think um, I think that you don't have to be an entrepreneur to get that, but I think um, being a good steward of capital is really important in the ecosystem.
0: yeah now you mentioned uh, X factor, which was kind of the segue of you starting to uh, identify opportunities for X factor to well, you were one of the X factor partners, which was a vehicle. Established by Flybridge to support women entrepreneurs, right? So you were doing this while you were still running Bowen and drape
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So X Factor is a ten million dollar fund It's now on fund, Two. but Anna Palmer who's an entrepreneur and chip sort of had this idea coming out of the last election of how to sort of write the VC industry and um, they thought this vehicle could give access to more women, where they thought there was a real arbitrage opportunity, where women are sort of underfunded. Then they also thought it had this dual purpose of giving female founders who historically get less venture capital, and so maybe take less money off the table, give those entrepreneurs at bats investing so that if they wanted, they can graduate into, you know, being more full-time investors in the ecosystem. So it kind of creates this, you know, if, if you're left out of capital to begin with you like don't have capital to deploy yourself to become an angel investor like it creates this this uh catch 22 so um so it was a really awesome opportunity i loved the idea of the mission and at the time i actually thought i actually didn't think i would like investing because i had such terrible experiences with investors i actually thought well i can check the box and tell everyone i tried it and that'll be it um and I just really loved working with founders. I loved the, it scratches a whole different uh, itch and intellectual curiosity on other side of my brain that operating doesn't. And, um, and I think it's, it's so fun and rewarding to be able to help people get from zero to one. And so, especially as a founder yourself. So um, yeah, I started to do that on sort of nights and weekends as a hobby and it, it became, I was really passionate and was one of the more active members. And so it sort of surprised me um, in terms of how much I really enjoyed doing it.
0: Well, the, the, the concept worked out well because you did make several investments um, and you're now a partner at Corrigin Ventures. So talk about Corigen. like what's the, what are the details on the firm and uh, you just announced a, a new fund. So there's a lot of exciting things happening there.
1: Yes. I am so excited about Corrigin. So, um, David and Ryan are the two other partners, David Goldberg and Ryan Friedman. And they are both young, really talented partners who are all, all of us are ex-operators. And so that was really important to me to join a firm where um, that, again, that empathy and that line of sight into the entrepreneurial journey was there. Um, and so the cornerstone for Corigen is that, you know, we're this, we're a seed stage fund in New York, We lead seeds in, you know, 500K to a million dollar checks. And we're pretty now industry agnostic where we really just are, you know, our secret is that we're looking for sort of -of one-of-one founders that we think we can spot because we were founders ourselves. Um, And we're really going after anybody who's transforming and reshaping the real world. And so by that, we mean really talented entrepreneurs with unique market fit where they are layering technology over daily life experiences um, to reshape the way that people live their lives and so that can be everything from um, we've done a lot in the prop tech space in the consumer space and in the in different marketplaces to activate different parts of life and so um, we're just really excited to help people at that early stage again get to the Series A, and be a a good partner along the way. That's sort of no BS. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's
0: it's helpful to have that operating experience and that empathy of running a company and what it's like to be you know a founder and being on the other side of the table. Now, what is the ninety nine percent economy that uh, that I saw mentioned out there?
1: Oh yeah, so this is what I'm excited about. Is I call it the ninety nine percent economy, which is really looking toward not necessarily luxury or things that are you know daily life experiences that are for the one percent or things for people necessarily at a desk job that a white collar worker is like i think a lot of those um industries have really benefited from technology and we're sort of the first ones to. and so where we're really excited to look is beyond those to. Areas of the economy that have been overlooked historically, that are sort of like I said, everyday experiences. So, um, you know, new forms of care, for instance, where uh, whether that's new forms of child care, elderly care, um, addiction and cessation programs. Like, what are what are these areas of life that have sort of been the underbelly of the economy that people have overlooked with technology? Um, you know, where are there's such big parts of the economy around, um, you know, blue collar workers and construction and those industries are, are, you know, I, I, and I forget the exact stat. It's like, it's over 10% of, of GDP is around that area. And so it's like bringing technology to those projects and to that workforce is something that we're really interested in where it can hugely benefit and create scale. Um, and so, that's how I like to think about it. It's it's about creating accessibility and and transforming daily life with technology.
0: What I thought was interesting, uh, I saw a stat out there that said 50% of investments in for- Corrigin in 2019 were made into underrepresented founders. So that's that's an impressive stat too.
1: Yeah. And I can't take any credit for that because I wasn't on board yet, but I do think that it exemplifies that the team is really just focused on, like I said, like extreme founder market fit and who's the best person to run the company. And I think the team does a good job of checking their bias at the door to really understand who's the right person. And so obviously, I think they they believe in diversity. You know, they hired me as a partner. Um, and I think it's one of the many reasons that Corgen can outshine is because we have a really diligent process around like what's the right founder to attack this market. Um, And so I think we can see potential in people maybe that get overlooked otherwise.
0: So what are you most excited about now that you are a partner at Corrigin? Like what are you most excited about in terms of being a VC?
1: I'm really excited about supporting our founders, our existing founders. Um, There's a bunch that are about to go live and so really excited to help them in our new fund. I am excited about, I mean, gosh, this whole—it's a weird time, honestly, to be a new investor.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> it can be a, a a great time. Like there's, you know, in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, Airbnb, Uber, Slack—all these great companies were born out of that hour.
1: Totally. Um, so I do think there will be a lot of opportunity. So, I, um, so I'm excited to see what will happen in a post-COVID world and how consumer behavior will shift and evolve and how new habits will form uh, in retail in what I call sort of the homebody economy, where I think people will get used to a lot more having their creature comforts at home and living virtually. Um, looking at you know interested in new forms of care and coaching virtually, that I think is sort uh, of the next evolution of the telemedicine movement. Um, and yeah, I've been really interested to just kind of see what shapes up because I think that we're in a moment that will have lasting ripples in the way that consumers behave
0: yeah no doubt and education and so many industries are just transforming as we speak based on COVID-19 and
1: yeah it'll be so interesting to see how people socialize virtually it'll be interesting to see how workplaces evolve Um, we've talked a lot about you know, the, the square footprint per employee has shrunken down over the last few years, um, you know, with sort of the we working of the world. And now with concerns around sort of distance and sanitation, it's like how our workplace is gonna evolve, physical space is gonna evolve and expand. How's sanitation gonna work? How are supply chains gonna work as far as traceability? Yeah, there's so many interesting things that I think will evolve out of this.
0: Yeah, there was a company in New York that was a startup, and I think it was 2011 called Turntable. And the whole concept was a virtual club kind of thing where there was like a big DJ booth and somebody would be like designated as the DJ and they would play music. And then you would join into these rooms, which 2011, like they raised from, I think, first round capital and Union Square. They uh, they were ahead of its time. Like that would be in, like very popular right now. Someone needs to bring Turntable back is, is my mantra right now.
1: Someone needs to bring Turntable back. I would, I would tune in. Yeah, I need a little party in my life right now.
0: That's right. <laughs> so, now, what what advice would you give to uh, other first time entrepreneurs, like especially females and minorities, like around raising capital? Like, what what advice do you give to uh, to folks? Uh, I,
1: yeah, there's a there's a couple things that I say. One is just finding your own voice, your own confident voice. I think a lot of times, at least I know that I struggled with what's the voice that I should have in those meetings versus what's my voice? And I think um, staying true to yourself while being able to be confident in the message that you have is really important because I think people can, that shines through. Uh, I say to paint a very big vision. Um, What I have seen, and I think there's some data to back this up, is that systematically, uh, in particular women, Uh, are more pragmatic in terms of the way that they approach their business. And that's been proven on the backside where uh, female founders sort of outperform like dollar for dollar in terms of capital put into capital out. But what that means in the beginning is that um, sometimes they can be gun shy about painting a vision and how big something can get. And so I really encourage other female founders where if you're painting a vision, paint the biggest possible world that you can like hang your hat on. And so the, the, analogy I always give is I could have been pitching bow and drape and said, Hey, we're this cute customization company that sells sweatshirts online. What I would say is we are the destination for millennials across America. If they want anything in their life to be more personal, whether that's stuff for their home to wear on their body, like we are their go-to source. And it's just that like, It's, it's, it widens your view as to what it could be so much with just that like tweak. Um, and so I really encourage people to think about that because really good, um, VCs are always discounting what entrepreneurs say. And so if you're already discounting yourself, like you're, you're, uh, setting yourself to a a lower standard than other entrepreneurs are. So that's what I encourage, um, on the pitching side. Um, uh, and I, yeah, I think otherwise, I don't know. I don't know that there's like that, that many other tricks.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you yeah. gotta have a, you know, a good idea, a good team, good, you know, and the, you were just talking about like the market, the market needs to be sizable where you can have a venture returnable opportunity, you know, versus something that's, uh, you know, maybe smaller scale. So, uh, what's the best way to get a, get a meeting with you these days?
1: The best way to get a meeting with me is um, probably to tweet at me, tweet at, you can DM me. Um, I read all my DMs um, at Aubrey Pagano and um, send me your company, send me your pitch deck if you have it. And I'm happy to take a look. You can also find me on LinkedIn, but I check LinkedIn less frequently.
0: What are you watching these days now that, you know, we're in the, uh, the binge era right now of, uh, <laughs> staying at home. So I'm watching a lot more TV than I ever had. So.
1: It's so funny. Well, I think my like true dorkdom is coming out because I, I never watched TV. I've never been a big TV person. Yeah. Um, and so I've been reading a lot more actually. Well, good. Um, so I've, uh, I've been reading Proust. I, and I read a Sally Rooney book, um, called conversations with friends. That was really good. Um, and, but I did binge Tiger King.
0: Had to do that. Had to. I had because to. Otherwise that. you'd be like, what are you talking about? And people would be like, you haven't watched Tiger King. How did you not watch Tiger King? So yeah, I mean, I
1: actually, I was like a week behind everyone. And I was like, I don't get all these memes. <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I, think, I think I have to watch. And oh my gosh, I actually, my guilty pleasure is true crime. I do really like true crime. If I have to binge something that's sort of trashy. And, uh, and so to me, that was like, it's the, it's the ultimate like trashy true crime show about just this universe in America that nobody knew existed that I just, I think it's like the most fascinating show. I love it. I think it's going to be the number one Halloween costume.
0: That's yeah. Funny. Oh yeah. That's a good call right there. That's going to be a huge, huge Halloween costume. Absolutely. That's funny. <laughs> uh, what else do you like to do outside of work, you know, in normal conditions who are not quarantined
1: in normal conditions? I, um, I, I just like to, uh, I like to see friends and hang out. I mean, living in New York, one of the great things is that you can just always be out and about. So I'm probably out four, four or five nights a week grabbing dinner with friends, going to events, going on walks in the city. I love to, I call it bridge walking, <laughs> where I, I think one of the cool things about New York uh, is that there's so many beautiful bridges to walk over. So when it's nice out, uh, instead of meeting a friend maybe for drinks, we'll walk one of the bridges. Mm-hmm. together and catch up um and you get this beautiful view of the city as the sun setting so um so i like to i like to just be social um or or nest at home like i said i have my my new nice apartment that i like so i've been happily nesting at home listening to records and
0: cooking it's been good very cool well aubrey thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through you know your background you know all the the stories of bow and drape and obviously what you're up to now as an investor.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. This is my first podcast as a VC, so
0: I scored. I scored. <laughs> We're easy on me. <laughs> well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFiz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.